0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep?
0: Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet,
1: sweet slumber. Hello, welcome back to the show if you've been here before, and welcome to the thing if it's your first time. I appreciate you either way, and I hope you enjoy this episode. John and I, as we discuss on this episode, had not not conversed in depth in several years since about 2017, and for both of us, so much has changed, so many things that, well, we get into it on this episode, so let's not rehash it here. But John's a good buddy, he's a great dude, he makes amazing pedals, and it sounds like he just has more and more coming down the pipe that everybody needs to look out for. We get into all that on the episode, so let's not rehash it here, but if you wouldn't mind indulging me for a moment, I would like to invite you to text me, to join the text chat. The number is 503-751-8577, you can text in there and that will come directly to me, You'll have to answer a couple questions to opt into it. And if you ever feel like you don't want to be a part of it anymore, you can just text stop and leave. No harm, no foul, no feelings hurt. But what it does enable you to do is to talk directly to me. So if you have gear questions, I can answer them directly. I make a huge effort to reply to everybody on that thread. It might take me a little bit, but I always get back to everybody. So please shoot me a message through there. And I'll also send out things. I'll send out things to everybody. So everyone will get a message about something I find interesting or something I'm working on. It might be music-related. It might be food-related. It might just be a general update. Either way, that starts the conversation, and then we go back and forth. It's a really, really, really fun way to have a one-on-one with people that listen to this show. So if that sounds like something you'd like to do, Hit me up there, and we shall nerd out. All right, without further ado, let's get into this episode with my dude John Snyder from Electronic Audio Experiments. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes... I'm your host, Blake Wylan, and with me today, I have a past guest who I've been needing to talk to again for a very long time, Mr. John Snyder from Electronic
0: Audio Experiments. What's going on, dude? Hey, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to finally be catching up, Blake. I am shocked that the last time I was on this show was 2017. Uh, it feels like a completely different person who was on that show, so it's going to be good to catch up.
1: I can't hardly believe this. We were starting to talk about some of this off the air. But, um, I mean 2017 I wasn't even I wasn't even full time yet, you yep. know I was still like still doing it you know, as the side hustle, so and I've been doing doing it full time for a while, so it's really, really trippy to think back that far, but for some reason it doesn't you know, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, oh for but, sure, I don't know, but you've had so many different things change uh we gotta. Just probably start from, I guess, where we left off then you were, I think at that point you were still in grad school doing super smart guy, you know, stuff and, uh, also doing pedal stuff. And I think sending had maybe just barely been a thing. Your delay. Yep.
0: We were just in the process of getting ready to release that little did I know it was going to take another like four to six months to get that one out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, gosh, so 2017, I was Mm -hmm. right in the middle of of, uh, my PhD program, uh, which I did not finish. I didn't defend my thesis until May 2020. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how long I was uh, languishing there. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is fairly normal for, you know, for an engineering PhD, about about five years is what it takes. Uh, You take classes for a year, two years, and then it's just full-time research with a bit of teaching on the side until you put together some stuff that they deem worthy of uh, writing a thesis on, and then you write the thesis. Of course, we had a bit of a unique twist this year, didn't we? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, a big old wrench thrown right into everybody's gears. <laughs> um, so to get to give you the short version, um, I was making this device. Um, I had to spend many hours in a clean room making this, this device. It was a little chip where you could shine light in one end with a laser. And then when it comes out the other end, it's got useful properties for quantum optics. Uh, and so to test these devices, we needed this very fancy laser that we had to order about two years in advance. And it showed up uh, in the third week of February 2020. So I was all geared up to do my, you know, sort of the the final victory lap of this project I'd been working on. And uh, we got the laser calibrated and then uh, about the second week of March, they closed the doors of the lab. And so basically I had to just pick up the pieces and write a thesis of what I could. And so... Uh, I did. So it took about uh, about a month of just sitting there, waking up every single morning, drinking an entire pot of coffee, typing frantically like a madman. Um, And then I had my 150 page or so uh, thesis defended that in May. And then I was like, all right, well, let's go get a real job. Uh, That's that's what it's time to do. Right. Uh, And of course, you know, usually it's pretty customary to line up interviews and things like that in your last like basically while you're writing a thesis or when you know you're going to be writing and defending. It's all scheduled. Uh, and then nobody called me back. Nobody was calling anybody back as it turns out. Um, and I said, well, geez, okay. So I've been doing this pedal thing on the side for quite a while now. Um, you know, that was coming up on like basically the five-year mark that summer, uh, would be five, uh, five, summer 2020 was the five-year anniversary from the first batch of hand finished, hand painted, hand drilled, very crappy longsword version ones <laughs> and, uh, And so I said, all right, well, you know, I'll I'll build pedals for a bit while I interview for jobs. Um, And, you know, I I said I'd give myself like three months, three months turned into six months, six months turned into almost a year. At that point, I said, well, shoot, I need to get a shop um, because I can't do all this by myself. I can't be packing orders on my kitchen table. And uh, so we found a little pocket of commercial space right here in Boston in this artist building. And here we are. Uh, building pedals got you know two or three folks depending on who's uh making records or who's on tour in here with me and uh we're just we're just doing the dang thing you know is it weird that you
1: spent so much time you know in you know from my very very surface level understanding in some really advanced engineering stuff i mean you're you you said the word quantum that means it's advanced <laughs> to me you know uh to be going in a i don't want to say like less technical cuz it can get pretty weird for sure but into into what i would imagine for you is a less technical area of work
0: how does that feel is that a weird thing you know i think it's uh it's it's all very subjective um in some ways but the one thing that's not subjective is is really the depth um when you're when you get a phd the idea is that you have gone deeper than any one person has into a just hyper-obscure field, subfield of a subfield of a subfield of research. Mm -hmm. And so for about a six-month span, I was the leading world expert in this one type of chip that can only be made in like three or four labs across the globe. Um, And it's so obscure that most people weren't even really interested in it, but that's just what happens. And somebody somewhere might say, oh, there's a technique in this paper uh, that I can use for my research. That this one guy just obsessed over for an an inordinately long amount of time. So in comparison, you know, building pedals, you've got to know a little bit about a lot of things. And when you want to run a pedal business, you've got to know a little bit about even more things. And so, you know, I can obsess over over the electronics of a guitar pedal all day, every day. But the fact of the matter is, if I can't uh, do my taxes and uh, handle supply chain related things and pay people and, and do all these things and, you know, run, try to run a healthy business, then, then I'm stuck. And so it's that breadth, that's the breadth that gets you, right? Right, uh, right. You know, not like, it's almost liberating to be able to just hyper focus on one thing for as long as you possibly can. But managing all those little details is every bit as complex, in my opinion. Interesting. That's, that's fascinating, because I'm much more,
1: you know, I don't want to say experienced, but I guess I'm much more experienced with that general stuff, the running a business, I mean, a lot of people think that I'm just here by myself, which is true most (laughs) of the time, but I'm also involved in a lot of other things. And uh, so those complexities of like trying to figure out business things, you know, whether that's hiring, you know, whether that's personnel issues, whether that's branding, whether that's whatever, I'm very, very familiar with, with that for a variety of different reasons. Sure. So to, To hear you describe, because I couldn't begin to wrap my brain around what you were doing for your PhD. There's no way, (laughs) like I don't, like I know you're like just kind of surface level scratching it, because like I barely would understand it. But it's interesting to hear you compare the two in that way. I would never have imagined that that it would be. I guess as intellectually
0: stimulating as what you were doing before. Sure, it's just all just different flavors of the same thing. I mean, it's just to me it really is a testament to how much uh, how how deep you can get into something if you if you are allowed to focus on it with no other distractions. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that's one of the rare luxuries of academia for all of its its flaws and its problems and and, and such. Uh, having that opportunity was really special. But that being said, I like being able to actually think a little bigger rather yeah. than just drilling really really deep into something.
1: So I know just because, you know, of different chats we've had, uh, you know, over the years, more in the past, but definitely prior to you making this big leap, you were you were really wrestling with whether you should go further with the pedal business at at one point or not.
0: Yeah, what, definitely. Was
1: it ser- seriously just like the lack of um jobs I guess in that field that pushed you to that point or did you just finally feel comfortable like okay it's been five years the demand's been fairly consistent I think I can actually do this what really pushed you there
0: I think it was a little bit of both I mean we all know that the the guitar gear industry the music indus, musical instrument industry as a whole uh, had a real blockbuster year and that was absolutely a factor I said well shoot you know if I can if I can pay the bills doing this, uh, and have a job where I know I can safely work from home because I'm just here huffing solder fumes. Um, I can, you know, I can, I can try this out and see where things go. And, uh, it's, you know, it's pretty customary for folks to to take, you know, a little break after they finish grad school and just sort of take time to reassess and think about what they're doing. So I always thought it was temporary. And then, you know, it was my wife who said, you're really enjoying this. Uh, you're pretty good at it. And uh, you seem really happy. And so I said, Yeah, you're you're right. Maybe I should just put the job applications down for a little bit, you know, for a little while, and and see see what happens there. So that's been you know that was a very positive experience. And then it was it was moving into the shop that really took the brakes off the whole thing. That was when I said, Mm -hmm. okay, look, we've saved up some money, we've got operating expenses, we've got a business plan, which. It literally was harder for me to write the business plan than it was for me to write my thesis because my thesis was taking a bunch of notes that I had compiled over five years and, and translating it into a cohesive story. Writing a business plan was like learning a new language and then having to write <laughs> my thesis in that language. You know, it was just, it was really alien. I know there are folks who are way, way better at this than I am, uh, but we went for it. Um, and that was it. Like once we got it all solidified it said, all right, let's go, let's, let's just see what happens.
1: What I think is really cool about your brand in general, is like you you've really opened yourself up. You don't have to just do pedals. It's literally electronic audio experiments. So are you looking at
0: amplifiers or anything outside of pedals? It's very funny you mentioned that because that was the exact intent of the name was to leave the doors open. Um, my mentor when I first started was Nick at Dunwich Amps, who mm-hmm. is is really brilliant. He and I have a lot in common. I kind of, I looked up to him. I mean, I still look up to him. He's he's great. Um, but he he also was in academia while building pedals, and I was very inspired by that. And he was doing amps and pedals, and I said, "Well, shoot, I would love to to do what this guy's doing." Turns out, making tube amps commercially is really freaking hard. Uh, <laughs> yes, so know, hard. I've had so I've had hard. great conversations with many folks who are who are doing this. Um. And, uh, you know, like, for instance, well, I'm good friends with Alex over at Science Amps, and the amount of work that he's done to make his amps be practical for production is fascinating. You know, the, the amount of uh, redundancy that he's built into his, his uh, chassis, his power supplies, designing circuit boards that you can build an amp on and still trust it to be reliable at high voltages, you know, on the road, et cetera, enormous amount of work. I'd love to dive into that someday. Um I see the pe- I see pedals as very much a guitar flavored springboard into other forms of audio and we do have loose plans for Eurorack stuff eventually. Um we've got uh I've got a couple of pro audio ideas I would love to do even if it was just like here's a mic preamp that is just my flavor. I think would be really fun to do. Are mm-hmm. those markets going to be as vibrant as pedals? Probably not, but at least it would be very edifying to be able to dip a toe into those different fields. So yeah, Pro Audio, rack, maybe someday Hi-Fi. I've got a phono preamp design I've been sitting on for like two to three years um, in collaboration with a buddy of mine who used to be a, a Hi-Fi repair guy here in Boston. So someday, now that we've got the shop and people in the same place, the ideas are really starting to, to bubble back to the surface and we can chart our paths forward. Do you ever see yourself
1: revisiting, you know, well, and maybe we should actually dive into a little more specifically what you were studying so that people can have a better idea and I can have a better idea of it. But do you ever see yourself kind of diverting course and going back
0: to what you originally studied? That's a good question. I think uh, a lot of what I was studying was so, so niche that I think that the, you know, personally, I think I think that if someone were to take those ideas in a different direction, you'd they would have to use a different technology. Um, a big part of my thesis was basically saying, hey, we've got this process called uh, periodic pulling, uh, which basically means that you zap a crystal in certain positions so that its electric charges are pointing in a certain direction. And if you're, okay. if it's pointing up and then down, back and forth along a line, you can change the characteristics of light. The problem is I had to do that in one micron-sized strips, which Whoa. is, uh, the, it, uh, at the time of my thesis, was the smallest demonstration of this technique. And we have a lot of reason to believe that one micron is about the theoretical limit. Um, So there's probably not any more direction you can go with that type of material um, in the crystals I was using with the process I was using. So maybe somebody else will take it and run with it. Personally, I kind of feel like I've done my time with it. Uh, That said, I do kind of miss... I miss quantum optics. I miss being in a clean room to some extent. But I would say I I wouldn't mind using some of those skills I developed in a more audio-flavored scenario. So I can tell you what my pipe dream is Uh, someday. (laughs) So, you know, there there are companies out there like, uh, you know, X5, uh, Cool Audio, Sound Semiconductor, uh, Alpha, um, ALFA over in uh, Latvia. Um, These are all companies that make semiconductors in-house for the audio market. And so you've got reproductions of old Bucket Brigade chips and old synthesizer modules, you know, like some of these chips that were like, a whole uh, synth voice in like one little package, right? Um, or like a an attack decay envelope in one little package. And all of these things are really cool and really useful, but there's, uh, there's not a lot of production capacity for them because they all use techniques that have largely been forgotten because, you know, this was state-of-the-art in the 60s and 70s. And so the folks who are making this are using old equipment repurposed from that era and old, uh, you know, uh, production drawings from that era, and you know, it's that it's it's getting to be a dying technology. And if uh, if we want to keep analog alive, there's an argument to be made for still putting more investment into some of those things. Now, the problem is, if you want to open up a clean room, you know, you're talking you know well into the seven figures for uh, for upfront operating expenses, and and that's not an amount of money I will ever see in my lifetime. So, like I said, it's a pipe dream, but. Man, it would be so cool to get into the into the the IC side of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday, but you know, it's fun to think about. It, hey, you never know what's <laughs> going to happen. You know, I never
1: thought I would get to do this. I never thought I would have the opportunity to meet and hang out and uh, do things with the people that I've I've done today. And I think you could probably say the same thing about yourself. So, you know, maybe it's a pipe dream, but if it's <laughs> if it's there, yeah, I mean. I don't know. Those companies did it somehow.
0: It's true. So. Well, if any uh, if any in- investors want to send me back into a clean room um, so that we can make uh, some some new BBDS, let me know. It sounds like a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually, you're the perfect person to to talk about
1: this with because I'm obviously out of my depth when it comes to this. But I've heard the argument argument before that BBDS are technically
0: not analog. What do you think about that? <laughs> you know, uh, I have I have I was just diving into this argument about two weeks ago. Um, the uh, I think it was I think it's Jack. Well, and we should probably uh,
1: clarify for not everybody's quite as nerdy as we are. <laughs> BBDs are bucket brigade delays. So this is a specific chip that is used mostly in analog delays uh, just for those who might be confused at, the terms we're using,
0: but go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I think it was I was most recently reading uh, Jack Orman uh, kind of go off about this on his website, and he's he Jack Orman has a site called AMZ Effects, um, which is one of like the most long-standing DIY info hubs on in the internet. Definitely on the list of guys I'd love to have a beer or two with. Um, and uh, he feels very strongly about this issue, and I was like, this is this is interesting. Uh, personally, I'll just I'll just lead by saying. I, I believe that BBDs are analog, um, however, they're not quite all the way analog, uh, and the reason why is that, you know, if they're, when you're talking about a digital signal, you've kind of got two types of what's called quantization. Quantization is breaking a thing that is continuous, um, with aka infinitely variable, uh, into a discrete, limited number of chunks. Um, and so... Your two chunks of a digital signal are going to be the sample rate, which is how many times you're taking a snapshot per second. And then the bit depth, which is, you know, if you're looking at the the smallest signal and the biggest signal, how many steps are you allowed to have? Mm-hmm. And so in a BBD, you do have a sample rate. In fact, since you have a fixed number of samples within a Bucket Brigade chip, the, the clock is going to determine your delay time because... You're passing the signal down these buckets and for a slower clock, it's going to live in the buckets for longer. For a faster clock, it's going to go through the buckets faster. And so that's part of the sound of of, uh, digital or analog delays, especially at long times is that you're changing the sample rate. And so that's part of the sound. So a a very degraded analog delay repeat is going to be at a low sample rate, which with all the filtering and other stuff going on, sounds very pleasing to the human ear for whatever reason. Now the thing that's important is that the signal is still continuous in its amplitude because it's just the analog voltage at some snapshot in time is being stored. So it's not all the way into digital, but because there's a clock a lot of the rules about digital audio and digital signal processing still apply. So I'm going to I'm going to say it's analog, but I totally get why folks are saying that it's not analog. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe I'm a bit of a fence sitter here, but I just I like the weird nuances that sort of emerge when you're having these kinds of discussions because I mean, what the heck is it? You know, I've, I've heard the term uh, discrete time analog be used, and I think that's a pretty valuable uh, middle ground, so to speak.
1: Right. That's Yeah, that's fascinating. That helps me understand it a lot better because I'm, you know, I think I could build a fuzz face if you <laughs> asked me to, but that's about as advanced that, as I my electronic knowledge gets. Um, so thank you for that. That was very, very helpful. Yeah, of course. So another thing that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is, and this this might be, I don't know how much you can go into detail on this, so just tell me to shut up if it's the <laughs> case. But but you have a an interesting relationship with Bill Finnegan, who famously, you know, designed the, the original Klon mm-hmm. in the KTR. Um, seems like you guys are doing some things together. I'm not sure how much of that is. I know some of it's public because I saw it publicly, but I'm not sure how much of that you can go into.
0: Sure. So I'll I'll give you I'll give you as much as the story as is uh fit to print. Um, so you know, let's see here. I met Bill in about 2016 or 2017. I think it was not so far off from the last time I was on this show. Before I met him, I I had a vague understanding that he was in the Boston area and he was just a sort of cryptid to me. You know, he's a very private right. <laughs> person and uh, you know, kind of keeps to himself. Um but of course, his product had a lot of notoriety. And my friend, uh, Adam, who runs, uh, he and his wife run a pedal pop-up shop here in Boston called Stompbox Sonic, who I highly recommend. Anybody in the Boston area, please buy your pedals from them. They're the loveliest humans on the planet. Um, Adam was one of the folks who would come over to help build Centaurs at Bill's house. And so, oh, okay. because, you know, Bill was, <laughs> he was building Centaurs 16 at a time on his folding card table. Everybody's read that Premier Guitar article. Um, And, uh, you know, so he needed a little bit of help here and there. And he, you know, he kind of would contact local musicians in that regard. So he still sort of does that to an extent, is that, you know, he's got a lot of close ties to the community, if you know him. And uh, at the time uh, we met, uh, it was actually Doug Tuttle at MidFi Electronics who put the two of us in touch. And Doug and I go way back. We met at actually a Stompbox Sonic event. So as you can see, all the pieces are starting to come together. Right, You know, for a big city, Boston's kind of a small town. Um, <laughs> and uh, so so Bill needed help with this uh, test jig that uh, a former assistant of his had put together. It's a really clever sort of go, no-go box. Uh, Bill's rationale was somebody should be able to stumble into work hungover, plug a KTR into this thing, push the button on it, and it'll tell them if the KTR is working or not. And there's a little graphic on there that that tells you you know, set the KTR to, the, to these non-positions, push the button, and it runs a test. And it'll step through these various tests. And there's no screen on it. There's just some lights and a buzzer that will beep at you if the, if the unit passes or fails. It's extremely clever, um, and it works really well. The problem is that he only had one of them, and it was starting to fall apart. And so uh, the former engineer who uh, who had worked on it was no longer available. And so I basically had to reverse engineer it and then build three more of them. And in the process of that, became good friends with Bill, and I learned a lot about him in that process. I learned that uh, he is very picky. Of course, you could probably discern that from his products, and right. he knows very well what he's talking about because he and and uh, you know when he when he wants something, he has to understand all the little details that go into that thing, so that way he can do it in the way that he wants to, and if uh, something changes, he can adapt to those changes. But a lot of folks that you know the, the downside of this, and I say this with admiration, is that it can be very hard to delegate when you're somebody who wants to understand all of the nuts and bolts of the thing that you're doing. And that's why he was the kind of person who would go on Craigslist, couldn't find the pedal he wanted, and then hired a freaking MIT guy to do to <laughs> he help him with this <laughs> with this R&D and realize his vision. And uh, and he he knows exactly what he wants, but he doesn't always know the steps to get there. And that's where other folks kind of help him out. So. We uh, we've all heard about the the diode situation with the with the KTR. Um, Bill bought up this particular manufacturer of one and three A diode in the early '90s, uh, and I don't think at the time he expected he was going to sell you know well over ten thousand units of this product. Uh, you know the Centaur, well, what was it, eight thousand Centaurs, and then however many KTRs came after that. I'm not even sure of the number, but you know at the time he was not expecting this product to be a smash hit with a cult following, and so he just went with this diode that in the circuit as design thought he thought sounded the best. And so, of course, this mystique developed about, you know, about it. There's the whole magic diode thing. People on forums trying to reverse engineer it, blah, blah, blah. But people on forums (laughs) being weird about something. I've never heard of such things. (laughs) You know, it's uh, people were people were tantalized and infuriated. And, uh, you know, I think I think there is definitely an element of folks who feel threatened by the fact that Bill has always marched to the beat of his own drum. Uh, and that, you know, like that's not, everyone can go through life living that way. Just, just really, you know, not at all, c- you know, caring what other folks think. He just is, he's just, he's just doing his thing. So, um, all this to say with this diet supply running out, uh, Bill contacted me and basically said, Hey, you work in a clean room. Do you think we can make more of these? And I said, good luck with that. I did do, <laughs> right. I I did actually put together a proposal for doing uh, a type of semiconductor analysis on these diodes so that we could figure out how they were constructed and perhaps contract a fab to make more with similar specs. But unfortunately that process is that process would cost more than anybody has made off of any guitar pedal ever. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to make custom semiconductors, you better be in the graphics card industry or working for a military contractor or somebody with a lot of money to throw around because the musical, industri- musical instrument industry is not it. We've always uh, gone the other way around and done more of a swords to plowshares type of thing, especially when it comes to old germanium parts. So, of course. And, uh, you know, what's more, Bill did not want to reveal the fact that he was running low well on diodes because there was always the chance that somebody would figure out what they were and then kind of end run the whole process and and uh, take away what he sort of felt like was the last remaining thing with all of these clone clones on the market, sort of the last remaining thing that made his the real genuine article. Um, you know, I personally think that if even if somebody did manage to get those exact diodes, there's still value in supporting the originator of that design. But I can see where, where he was coming from, you know, feeling it as like an existential threat uh, to the, to the brand, um, you know, that my words, not his, like he was, he's been remarkably calm about the whole thing. And I was the one over here being like, dude, what are you going to do when you run out of these diodes?
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and I did tell him early on, I was like, look, um, I know these diodes have a special sound to them because I've observed it myself. Oh, there goes the train. Sorry, the train goes by in this place and it's really loud. The train tracks, are you like know, right out the door. <laughs>
1: You know, that is actually vintage tone mob. We, I used to have train <laughs> sounds on my side all the time when I was recording in the fuel lab. And so now we're doing a throwback. Now we've got train sounds again.
0: Amazing. Um, vintage episode. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so, so Bill had, uh, you know, early on, um, you know, kind of expressed that, that, you know, th- he, he, he wanted to impress upon me that these diodes were different, and it didn't take long for me to observe that firsthand, both with equipment and also even just listening to, to two side by side. And uh, But I did say, look, I don't believe these diodes are, are inherently magical. I think that if you find the right way to massage the circuit, you would be able to get the same, get the same sound. The catch was uh, he had many, many, many populated circuit boards, which needed to be uh, adapted in order to work correctly with uh, with whatever diodes come in, and great. so that meant that it became an Apollo thirteen situation because we had to be able to use using existing circuit boards populate the board with components that would make the pedal sound the same with different diodes in there, and uh, we did manage to pull it off. Um, it took about three to four months of you know him coming over here once a week. We would hook up uh, you know that that uh, he's got that Centaur board with every part socketed. Um, you know, we would modify that, we would modify KTRs and just, and just hook them up to my spectrum analyzer, hook them up to distortion analyzer. Uh, you know, I'd set up double blind tests, which was always really fun. And, uh, we finally got there. So just, you know, ultimately within the, the confines of the original circuit, we were able to get the sound to be the same with these diodes. Now, here's the thing that's most interesting to me about all this is that not a lot of people, um, use the, the Klon or KTR circuit at maximum gain, which is where the diodes are mostly doing their thing. A lot of people use it as a regular old run of the mill clean boost, which is a role where it excels. But in that most famous use case, the diodes are barely even engaged in the circuit at all. (laughs) Exactly. So, and this, this really speaks to the, to Bill's attention to detail, in my opinion, because even, even myself, I would have been like, well, if only ten percent of my use, you know, my users are are turning the gain um, gain knob all the way up on this thing, I'm just going to write it off as you know, okay, cool. The product has changed, and he was so devoted to just you know maintaining the original sound of the unit, regardless of the use cases that people were going for, that he went through all this trouble, and that might very well speak to a uh, you know, not a bad business sense, but like I think a lot of folks who are well versed in business might might say, dude, you got to let this one go. But he kept on soldiering on, and he was able to get the result that he was looking for by, you know, basically listening really, really carefully, and you know, like working through the problem systematically with my help. So it was a really valuable learning experience. Uh, for my takeaway was get all the germanium out of all my products as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but but it did it did work out, and uh, I can't I can't pick those two units apart. Um, you know, with the with the component changes in there, you can rig up a double blind test. And I I can't personally cannot hear the difference. And Bill can still hear like one or two things, but I think he'll live.
1: Right. So <laughs> he'll he's like, OK, <laughs> I guess this is going to work. Yeah, that is hilarious. And I've tried to explain that to people before that. You know, you're using this essentially as a, a clean to clean ish boost and we're talking about clipping diodes here. Yes. Like literally clipping which hardly anybody uses a clon circuit for Mm -hmm. and so i always find it hilarious when people you know obsess over those things that they don't even use yeah you know oh for Um, sure
0: for sure and i say this as somebody who uh is in that minority who really likes the sound of a clon running at full tilt uh Mm -hmm. that's how i have historically used it and then i'll usually put uh i like to i like to use it uh in front of one of our halberd drives and just absolutely just punish the front end of the halberd with that extra focused mid range works really well. Um, it's 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 heavy. Uh, it's even even kind of like got that, you know, almost uh, like wire flavor, you know, like that really like spiky kind of blown out guitar tone. I just I love it. So, you know, there's a it's a you there's a use case in there for everybody.
1: You know, you're you've always been a really interesting person to me because <laughs> when I talk to you, you know, you're, you're very intelligent. You come from the academia world. You know, you're very well spoken and you love noisy, insane music. Oh, that's <laughs> that, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't think that you find that cross section or that crossover very often, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm mistaken. Do you have a lot of uh, friends from the academic world that also like, you know, noise rock?
0: Um, honestly, I was one of the only people in my, you know, in my department who even really cared that much about uh guitar music so you know maybe maybe i am just a bit of a bit of an oddball hard to say really uh nobody i nobody knows least of all me where my my music taste ultimately came from but i think it might have just been a result of going to a basement show when i was a kid at just the right time and saying wow this is the stuff and right. you know <laughs> you go you go to a, a, a punk show in some random suburban basement and uh, sometimes it's terrible and every once in a while you get a band that's just that just rips and it's like the noisiest thing you've heard in your life the PA doesn't work right so it's just all guitar and uh crash cymbals uh but hey if it if it if it works it works <laughs> i don't know i've got a band for you by all right the,
1: way. the uh the, the guitarist and uh, frontman was just on the podcast they're called glitchers and they're from the UK and it's this dude and uh his uh, his partner mm-hmm. um She's on drums. He's on guitar. He's plugged into some random black star amp with some random cab that he doesn't even remember where it came from. And what they do is they go play shows out on the street. Oh, sick. They just, they they like busk Mm -hmm. and it's just, just like super abrasive. I mean, it's so good. It's, it's so awesome. And like listening to their recordings, which he does all himself, Mm -hmm. by the way, I'm like with this amp and the drums and like garage band. Amazing. And it, it sounds incredible, and they they've started to get this cult following because they keep playing. They'll be they'll do like fifteen or twenty minute shows in like shopping districts, mm-hmm. and people are and then like after bigger bands, like they've they've went to like idols concerts and just played on the sidewalk. Oh, that's that's
0: like. perfect. That's that's yeah. awesome. Idols so, is a band I'm a
1: huge fan of. Oh yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the glitchers. These I just love that. They're, you know, in the days of social media, we're also focused on, you know, regardless of what project you're doing, you're trying to get people's attention as they're scrolling on by. You're mm-hmm. trying to get people's attention to your product or your music or your project, whatever it is. And they have figured out a way that, like, you're gonna pay attention. You know, they just show up and they don't do it in a they don't do it for so long that it it's an impediment to somebody, but you're gonna pay attention to them for those 10 to 15 minutes that they're playing. And uh, in a way that you wouldn't maybe a, a bucket drummer or an acoustic guitar. Oh, for sure. You know, for sure. Thing. So it's, it's pretty rad. You definitely should check out Glitchers. Oh, they're, I'm absolutely awesome. going
0: to. that. That's right. That sounds right up my alley. And uh, yeah. it reminds me of of uh, a performance that had a huge impact on me when I was younger. Um, and and I, I really like telling the story now because one of the members of this band uh, is my graphic designer, Zach, um, who does all of the fonts and layouts for our pedals and merchandise and that sort of thing, and has been doing a lot of our assembly for a long time as well. Um, he was in this band called Circe, which was this uh, this punk band out of Boston. And I remember circa about 2011. Uh, my I was in college. I was having a very miserable semester. I just gotten dumped, and uh, you know I was just doing the old scrolling thing. And I come across this video of a band playing in a laundry room. Uh, and it was, it was Zach's band, Sir, it's a, just packed in the laundry room of this brownstone, uh, in back Bay, Boston, absolutely ripping a 10 minute set that had like, it was like five or six songs crammed into 10 minutes. And it was just the most ferocious set of music I had seen in my life. You know, I was listening, I had listened to heavy music before I'd been to my share of, you know, warp tours and stuff like that. But this was, was on some kind of other level. And in that very brief interaction, I was like, not only is this band amazing, but I also want to be friends with them. Um, and it, you know, worked out, (laughs) um, you know, Zach and I have been friends for a very long time, but I was just, I was just so blown away by that. So sometimes you just got to be really loud and noisy to get folks attention. It seems like it's, I'm glad to hear that approach is still so, uh, so successful, you know?
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, they've gotten a bunch of viral videos and, you know, the cops will come up and like tell Mm -hmm. them to be quiet. And they're like, we will in like a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome though. Like can you uh can you spell that band name for yeah, the Yeah, uh,
0: Cerce. it's spelled C E R C E. Okay, sweet. I'm going to have to look that up later. They're they're That's amazing. Cool. Highly recommend them.
1: So your product lineup. I know you've traditionally done everything kind of in batches because you had to. So you were, you know, building them in your kitchen or whatever. You are kind of limited by what you can produce. Our thing is continually available now to the degree which that is possible given the supply chains these days or how are you how are you handling sales and things like that
0: so we're getting very very close to having everything continuously available um you know historically what would happen was i'd have a lull in activity at school i'd place a big order for parts uh i'd build what i could uh you know basically nights and weekends or i'd have uh you know a friend help me out with just like the final assembly there were plenty of times where i would just dropship a big Mauser cart of parts to to Brad at Nerd Knuckles uh, house. And he would help me with assembly too. And uh, you know, then I would just say, all right, this is going up at this time and place, but we were never making enough. Uh, It was, you know, just because there wasn't really enough time, not a lot of resources. I didn't want to, you know, take out uh, a line of credit to get a bunch of parts to do a big production batch. And so we would just have things when they were available. And eventually we were sort of you know, kind of bootstrapping our way up to bigger production batches of, you know, instead of 20 to 30 pedals at a time, which is where I was the last time we spoke, we were getting closer to, you know, 100 pedals at a time, which was sort of the the platonic ideal at the time. And, uh, you know, eventually I was like, okay, we got to figure out how to get more models in place. And a lot of that was just like building up business acumen and uh, developing good relationships with contract manufacturers and making everything as quick and easy to assemble as possible that was a big part of my my quarantine project was basically to redesign the entire lineup uh so that everything there's no wires in the final assembly but it's still rugged which is easier said than done it took me a long time to find you know plug-in cables that stay if you uh you know take the pedal out in the road and beat it up for a while or you know circuit board mounted jacks that are are still you know, metal and grounded, like little, little details that I was so concerned about and wanted to get just right. Uh, but they also didn't want to pay an arm and a leg for, because you know, we wanted we had a price point we wanted to follow. And so doing all those things, making it as efficient as possible, um, we were like, all right, let's, let's go, let's build as many pedals as we can. And then of course, you know, the supply chain is starting to be an absolute mess. <laughs> but at this point I can, I can say that we've got long swords in stock. We've got model FETs in stock. We've got daggers usually in stock. Um, we're we're very close to having Halberds uh, in, regularly in stock. Uh, I don't know when this episode is coming out, but Halberd V2 is going to be out on Tuesday the twenty first, uh, which is very Ooh. exciting. We're we're surprised dropping that out of nowhere, so blast from the past. Um, and <laughs> um, that's another one we've been you know we we had to do. That was actually the one where I said okay we got to get the germanium out of this thing so that we can make it in in more. Uh, reasonable production quantities. It had a germanium transistor in it. And we had we would have to hand test and hand bias every single one, and it just took a long time. And we had a surprising number of rejected transistors in that circuit. So we were able to button all that up, and that's regularly available. The next uh, the next thing that we're trying to kind of get in more regular availability is is hypersleep, which is our analog reverb. But those chips are really really hard to find. So we're going to do what we do the best we can with those but i suspect that one will eventually get new life as a uh, as a dsp product once we mm. can once we you know whenever we run out of those chips um i'm going to try to emulate the behavior of that chip keep as much of the circuitry analog as possible then do hypersleep 2 this time more affordable or 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 what have you so but yeah we're we're getting closer and we've been able to get more retailers too which is huge
1: well now I've got to be watching out for that hypersleep <laughs> drop because uh, I've, that's a pedal that's been... I played, I think, the prototype of it at one of the Fear the Riff Expos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never been able to forget about it. Like I've been, always been like, I've got to grab one of these. So now that I... Even though I know that the if you do end up going DSP, knowing you, it's going to sound exactly the same. I still... like Part of me is like, I was there from the beginning. I need to have... <laughs> <laughs> the original because I'm a nerd like that.
0: Well, you haven't even heard that version. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, we're coming out with this thing in like three months. And I couldn't. Uh, it, the That prototype was like unusably noisy. Uh, it was very noisy. It took, yeah. it took like another two years of me learning how to design power supplies to make one that wasn't noisy. Um, because if you put that pedal in the same signal chain as a really high gain fuzz or something like that, it squealed uncontrollably. So... That one, uh, you know, that was that was like, I think Fear the Rift 2016 was when you came out. Uh, and we didn't release the first batch of Hypersleeps until I think 2019. So it took, oh, okay, a, that took a really right. long time to figure out how to get that one right. Um, and uh, the, the biggest problem was actually, so we were used, so a, a lot of BBDs are happier at 15 volts rather than the standard 9-volt pedal supply. And the most common way to get a 15-volt pedal supply Uh, is to use a thing called a charge pump, which is, uh, it's a, you basically have a switch that turns on and off um, very, very quickly, and it charges up a capacitor uh, also very quickly, and you can basically stack the pedal voltage on itself over again, and you can double the voltage, or you can invert the voltage, and there's all kinds of uses for these. The problem was that the frequency of a charge pump is comparable to the frequency of a BBD clock. And if you've got two Um... clocks that are very close to one another, you get a phenomenon called heterodyning, which is how you decode audio from a radio transmission. It's the same idea. And so if those clocks are off each other by just a little bit, then you can get squealing that is in the audio range, even if the clocks themselves are much higher frequency than audio. So it made it unusably noisy and we had to do a completely different power supply in order to make it work uh, work correctly. So that was why that one took so long because I had to learn how to design uh, a boost converter, which is a whole other beast. But now it's, uh, that's something, uh, you know, it was worth, it was worth the time it took, but I wish it had been a little faster. I remember you telling me that too. I was like, when is this going to come out? Oh, like three months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then I, when it, and then when it finally did come out, I was like, is that the same? Is that the same? That is, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. Basically in name only. Oh, wow. So it's, I mean, I imagine it hit the sonic characteristics you were shooting for with the original, but mm-hmm. it had to just be a completely different layout. Everything. Oh, basically.
0: yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I mean, it took it took a long time to just, you know, there's a, I, I realized in that process why all the pedals using that bucket brigade ship that came out in the late 70s, early 80s were all commercial failures because uh, they were all unusably noisy, too.
1: What are some of the other ones that came out with it?
0: Um, so there was uh, the DoD FX45, um, which despite it being noisy, I do really like um, they, uh, you know, that one is the problem with all. So there was that one, which, you know, it doesn't, it, even though it has two of those chips in it, you think it would have more reverb time, but it basically sounds like a low fi room reverb. Cool sound, but okay. not, not the like sort of washy grittiness of the hypersleep. And then there was the Morley, which I still haven't been able to get my hands on, but one of my old one of my old friends, my hometown, uses one in his band, and that one similar idea kind of sounds like a room reverb, not very like big and washy. And then there is the EHX solid state reverb, which is one of the holy grail EHX pedals. Um, I suppose at this point I should shout out my friend uh, Dan Danger, who has an enormous EHX collection. Um, he's based out in uh, Western Mass and has uh, the studio where it's just floor to ceiling display case is full of ehx pedals i think he's got every single pedal that was built pre-1990 and all kinds of weird collector stuff he's got prototypes he actually has two of the solid state reverbs which uh, is an enormous accomplishment because only a few dozen were made it never made it to production but it sounds absolutely incredible um and that pedal was one of the inspirations for the hypersleep we didn't we didn't clone it um but it was playing that one when I said, Oh, these these chips actually do have something worthwhile. Because I had played the Morley, I had played, uh, or, you know, I heard my friends Morley, I had played a DoD FX45, and I was like, Yeah, not really that interesting. Digital reverb is better. Uh, but then I played this EHX, and I was like, Oh, wow, this thing is really, really cool. What makes this special? And it turns out that they were just clocking the chip uh, more aggressively to get longer times out of it, and it just opened up this whole new Sonic world. But yeah, good luck finding one of those solid state reverbs. They uh, basically do not exist. Uh they're they're incredibly rare. But if you ever do see one, I mean, at least play it because wow. <laughs> I mean,
1: if I see <laughs> one and I can afford it, I'll probably just buy it.
0: <laughs> I, I'm actually like afraid to ask what what they're worth, but they are they are very cool. But yeah, all that to say, you know, as a side note, these were all coming out at the dawn of digital reverb. And so everyone, you know, you would play one of these, and then you would play, you know, an early Alesis unit or, you know, if you're if you were lucky, an old lexicon Um, and it just was it was, you know, either you're getting more of the same thing or you were getting this like whole new universe of of tones that was ushering in whole new genres of music at the time. So, you know, it's obvious why Digital Reverb won out when it did. But but these are cool little historical relics. It's an interesting thing,
1: too. And it ties back into our previous Bucket Bucket Brigade discussion where if you ask a lot of people they'll say that analog reverb only exists in the form of a room or a canyon mm-hmm. or uh, something of that nature. So it's it's interesting to think you know everyone knows about analog delay, everyone knows that that's a thing. Right. But no one no one thinks about it in reverb terms, which is kind of interesting, but I've tried to explain to people before that reverb is essentially kind of like delay Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that's what people don't fully understand the the, uh, uh, EQD Afterneath the description of that product was what made me first understand what reverb was oh yeah Yeah. it's just a bunch of early reflections and you know it's the sound of sound bouncing around
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's (laughs) neat I think one of the reverb algorithms on the mood is a similar thing and you know Dan Dan at all blood noise is certainly somebody who can speak to this this sort of thing very well where it's like, you know, that and the afterneath share this car- this quality of okay, you're starting off with these like discrete echoes ping ponging around, and then as you turn them up, they start to smear into one another, and and you know it's a cool it's a, it's an educational tool just as much as it is a sound design tool. I Definitely. think I think it's brilliant.
1: Yeah, the afterneath original afterneath, this first EQD pedal I ever bought. Oh, nice! Wow, that's a
0: good first that one. Was a,
1: that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so weird to even think about. Um. One thing we haven't really touched on too much is the pedal that I have, which is actually one of my favorite one of my favorite pedals, period, but definitely one of my favorite dirt pedals. Is the model Fet. Oh, thanks. Man, that thing is so good. I, I just had this memory that I bought one of the prototypes from you. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which prototype it was. And then I got the what at the time was the latest version. And then I sent the prototype to somebody, and I don't remember where it went. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just having this strange realization that I have no idea where that pedal is. That's what happens mm.
0: sometimes. I can't tell you how many prototypes of mine have just uh, floated away into the ether. Just hope they're being put to good use, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, that's. Uh, I'm glad you're still getting mileage out of that one. Um, that's uh, that's a product that we've we've very lightly refreshed every so often. Um, you know, as part of our, our big uh, product redesign um, you know, like basically last year, uh, one of the things I did was, uh, just beef up reliability. So like with that pedal, I was like, okay, this sounds exactly the way I want it to. Um, but we did have some folks who were, who were killing it with, uh, incorrect power supplies every once in a while. Someone would say, oh, well, the dip switch on my power supply got bumped into the 18 volt position and I plugged it in and pop. There it goes. Um, and so most of what we were doing was, uh, reliability improvements basically. And, uh, so we've got this circuit now Um, I just did a TikTok about it, which is a very funny phrase to say, uh, makes me feel very old. Um, but, uh, if you plug in now for all of our pedals, if you plug in the wrong power supply, it just won't turn on. Um, but otherwise in every other respect, uh, the model FET that we're making now, uh, sounds and functions identically to, uh, to the one that you've got. So we kind of felt like we just, we just got that one, got that one where we needed it to be. And, uh, now the, the job is, uh, making sure anyone who wants one can get one.
1: It's kind of a one of the few instances. I've only had this happen twice where I really wanted the original whatever it was, mm-hmm. like I really want and I still really want a sun model too. Oh, sure. So like, who doesn't, you know? Exactly. But that pedal scratched the itch well enough that I was like, "Oh, I can calm down. <laughs> like if I really need that sound, I ha- I have it, you know, more or less." And the same thing happened with the my Yamaha CP, what is it? CP I forget 88 i don't remember what it's called but it's their their digital piano emulation oh yeah so, those are awesome or, so the that scratched my roads itch like the Rhodes sound in that is so good that i was like okay mm-hmm. i
0: don't need a Rhodes the way I did, yeah the way i did well it's but, like it's the thing sometimes with some of these vintage pieces it's like great you finally got one uh good luck ever taking it on the road or you know taking it out of your house right Uh, you know, it's like, I would, don't get me wrong. I would also love an original model T, but I would just be afraid of it all the time. It'd be like, just, you know, once, once a piece of gear eclipses a certain value, it's like, it's like even using it is, it feels like you're tarnishing an investment rather than, you know, using a tool (laughs) that's meant to be, uh, performed with. Right. And, uh, so that's why we're always like, yeah, you know, the model FET is, uh, 90% of the tone of a model T for 10% of the price, maybe Mm -hmm. less than 10% these days. I don't even know what a model T goes for. I mean, even the beta leads have skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. It's. I think
1: I bought my, my beta lead combo for six hundred bucks, like a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I don't know the last time I saw one under a thousand. No, I believe it's, it. It's insane. Um, actually, mine, uh, mine's, mine, mine belonged to. Uh, I got it from. Um, my brain has totally <laughs> failed on me. Wow, I haven't had that happen in a little while. <laughs> like, we're just like, click. We're not gonna, we're not gonna remember any of the things that where you were trying yep. to go with four hundred four memory not found. Uh, yep, exactly. Yeah, got Thunder Road guitars. Oh, nice. Here in Portland, that's where I got it. But oh yeah, you were speaking about dealers, and we're getting close to the end, and I have a few other things I want to touch on. But retailers are n- not something you really dealt with before, so how has that experience been and what would you say to any aspiring builders that's looking to work with more retailers
0: sure so I would say you know we we had been keeping our keeping retailers at arm's length we had worked with kind of a select few mostly for uh, international stuff you know one of my favorite dealers that we work with is um, Joe's pedals in uh, in the UK uh, Joe has been buying pedals from us for for quite some time and for a lot of people, they feel better getting it from him than they do shipping from us, especially with all of the the VAT changes and Brexit and everything. Uh, he's really helped us navigate that situation. Uh, but so one of the things we realized was, you know, we've got we've got our audience of people. Um, you know, we've we've got there are folks who've been with us. You know, some of whom for a really long time who know what we're about and know what we're doing. But at this point, especially right now, it's really a matter of of getting uh, you know, getting our stuff into the hands of more people, especially now that we have the production capacity to, to be doing that. And, uh, you know, this kind of comes back to like the business related thing for a long time, I could just throw pedals up on the internet and say, have at it folks. Okay, cool, whatever. Uh, but now we're, you know, we're trying, we're trying to really kind of cement our, uh, you know, our place in the industry as, as somebody with, uh, you know, as a company with a reputation for making stuff that is, uh, High tech, as far as guitar pedals go, uh, or at least you know, somewhat you know, sophisticated in its engineering. I don't know the best way to, to phrase this, but you know, we're trying to say, okay, we're offering something that is over engineered and is a little bit off the beaten path. It's not the same stuff that you're getting, but also these are useful tools that you can use for a huge range of genres, and you can trust it when you're on on the stage or in the studio. And uh, you know, I I kind of felt like, okay, the social media algorithms have been changing in ways that that are always difficult to anticipate um and you know we like ultimately we're just trying to get ourselves out there more um you know with this with this shop which with our increased throughput uh eventually there is going to be a ceiling of what direct sales can can accomplish and so we've just been you know we we had a list of dealers who had hit us up and we said hey look i'm not sure if we can get anything to you right now but maybe someday when we've got more capacity uh and that's that's where we're at now. So is is just trying to sort of meet that demand. And there are lots of really great small shops in the industry. And I I think about the relationship that I have with uh, Stompbox Sonic here in Boston. And I think, well, shoot, there's probably folks in every major city, and even even a lot of not major cities, who've got a shop like this that they have a good relationship with, and that's their primary point of contact for what's cool, what's new, what's interesting in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how many you know how many folks are just you know maybe on their way home from work on a Friday, you know it's payday, and they say, well, what's What's the cool new pedal that 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 came out, uh, you know, in the last six months? And they go they go to their local shop and, uh, you know, there's there's something kind of nice about saying, oh, well, you know, we've got a there's a long sort a model fet like right there in the case with all the other cool stuff. So it's just a different way of looking looking at it. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a business move. It's a little bit of community building. It's a little bit of marketing, but it's been fun. We've enjoyed uh, kind of giving it a shot.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's a. The local shop thing I think is important. And, you know, and I I used to have some better relationships with, with the local shops, but like with the shutdown and everything, uh, some of that went away. And then some of my relationships at those shops, um, you know, they left for one reason or another. Sure. And so like now I'm I'm finding myself in this weird spot where I've got strum and I've got uh, you know, blackbook guitars are still there. But like it's just this weird thing where you know, my people have my people have moved on. Right now, uh, my I don't have the like I used to have go tos, and I don't have that quite as much as I used to. But yeah, I'm looking forward to the future. I'm like being real cryptic right now because I don't want to spill the beans <laughs> on one of my friends' projects. But that's <laughs> it really exciting. Be, it should be something I can point you towards in the future, both you, John, and the uh, the listeners, hopefully Awesome. ish But uh, all that's to say, thank you so much for coming on. Where you've gotten to about the end of the main episode here and i've introduced a few things since the last time you've you've came on that we should uh we should get to but first this is your chance to like tell a few thousand people anything you want to tell them if you want to give a shout out to your uncle you know joe or uh you want to you know plug something you want to say anything this is your chance to do it
0: all right we're going to go a little off the beaten path here um one of my best friends, uh, my friend Dave, has been uh, working on a tabletop card game uh, for a really long time. And there's a surprising amount of overlap between folks who play, uh, you know, Magic or, or Hearthstone or some of these other games and uh, the guitar pedal world. And so uh, pretty much any chance I get, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug my friend Dave's card game because I've been talking about pedals for an hour or posting about pedals for a month or whatever. Uh, so my friend Dave has developed this game called Trials of the Eldar. Uh, it's just coming out of Alpha right now um he's got an instagram with all kinds of resources if you want to play the game online or print a a beta testing deck or or what have you so yeah that's at trials of the eldar uh e-l-d-a-r on instagram so all right yeah so yeah he deserves a a shout out
1: that's awesome i love that that sounds like a good time cool you're right there is a lot of crossover because suddenly i'm interested (laughs) tell me more that's what i like to hear that's awesome all right john for the final segments of the podcast. This is this is the
0: one that's new for you.
1: What is your favorite boss pedal?
0: Oh man. Okay. Uh RV three is my favorite. Oh wow. The R V three. I can tell you two oh. reasons. One, cigarose. Two, Johnny Greenwood. That's all you really need. That's all right? you really need, right? I mean, it's yep. that like that cold metallic reverb. Um you know, just these like, like really dense reflections and a great tone control. Um, it sounds good before or after dirt, but it's like, if you want to do that, like washy tremolo pick post rock thing, like that is just the pedal for it. I love the RV three RV three. I've only played the RV two. So the two is also really, really good. Yeah, um, but if you great. can ever find it, th- you can still find a three for like a hundred bucks. So highly recommend uh snagging one. If you ever see one pop up used,
1: I will. I will. Yeah. I'll put that on the list right there with the PS3 and the DSD2, which I just found out about. I didn't even know it existed. <sighs> yeah, those are so, so, so good. I got, I've got a whole list of, like, must-buy boss pedals right now from this from this segment alone. Nice. So here we go. All right, final question, and I, I, I'm sure I asked you this before, but it's been a long time, and maybe your preferences have changed, but what is your favorite kind of pizza?
0: Oh, man, you're killing me. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> It's a very difficult question to answer, Blake. <laughs> I know. I know. It's not easy. Um, well, I've eaten a lot of pizza in the last, you know, four years since my last segment. Um, I'm going to say that uh, the Nick Fury at, um, uh, what? oh, my God, what's the name of the pizza place in Salem? Um, this is going to this is going to kill me. Um, I'm absolutely now it's my turn to have have uh, the, have the brain <laughs> disease. Um Hold please. Indeed. I'm gonna. I I literally need to I'm, need to look this up because this Nick Fury is
1: gonna... Salem Pizza. I'm doing the same thing. Here we go.
0: Flying saucer. Flying saucer. That's the place. So yeah. So the Nick okay. Fury at Flying Saucer Pizza. It's uh you know it's a buffalo chicken mac and cheese pizza. It's it's heinous. You can eat it like once a year. Um, but that with some of their garlic knots on the side, mm, so good. And they also make vegan uh, pizza, so all of your friends can come along. There you go. Perfect.
1: That sounds that sounds delightful. Uh to go to Salem I love I didn't know I never needed to go to Salem but apparently I need
0: to go to Salem Salem is cool you know like the the witch stuff is like a like a little skeevy but like the there's a great there are great few museums over there it's by the water so it's beautiful and uh you know if if uh if you're lucky you might run into Zach from there so you know <laughs> Zach and his Perfect. Zach and his partner Cam with both work here so good folks That's awesome awesome Right on, dude. This is a blast. Uh, you can
1: probably slide over to the uh, premium content here now. But awesome. thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to catch up and man, I'm stoked to be talking to you again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Really enjoyed this. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. All right, everybody. For John, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right. There you have it, folks. I know I say that every episode, but I don't know what else to say. You do have it. You have the main episode it's been absorbed into your brain. You heard the things. You, you you absorbed all of the nonsense. But you need more? Do you really need more? Sure you do. And in this case, John and I have more for you over on Patreon or the Apple subscription. So if you want to subscribe and get more episodes beamed to your ears every week, you can simply go to patreon.com slash tone mob and sign up there. Or if you're an Apple user, you can click that subscription button. Hey, why not? Right? That's not a bad way to go. It's real easy. It's right there. And I get that extra content and it helps support the show just as much. So thank you to everyone that has done that over the years. I can't tell you how massive of a help that is. It really is like just enormous. It helps so much. But if you can't do that, I totally understand. But if you could share this episode with a friend, I know. These are the things I ask for on every single episode. All of the episodes. I'm always asking you to share it because that's what keeps it going. People listening to it. If you weren't tuned in right now, there's no way I would be able to get the guests that I get. There's no way I'd be able to do this at all. So thank you so much simply for choosing to spend your time with me today. I super appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I will talk to you as soon as I possibly can. I hope you have a good week. Take care. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings, made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings